Mark Green and I have a ton in common. We have ties to San Diego. He was born here, whereas I relocated here. We're both Porsche fanatics. We both have sales and retail blood running through our veins. And we both host podcasts. In fact, Mark was kind enough to host me on his podcast, Cars Yeah, as his 1,899th guest. Clearly, Mark's been at the podcast game a lot longer than I have, so I certainly appreciate his professionalism, but it was his upbringing and career that led me to want to return the favor. Mark shares how important family is, as well as some really wonderful insights on how to keep one's family together and at peace, something never really explored on this podcast before. We chat about guitars and music, how he scraped together the money to buy his first Schwinn bicycle, and of course we chat about Porsche. Mark has in fact owned 12 throughout his automotive journey. We wrap things up with what would be his ideal road trip, so stay tuned for that. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Mr. Mark Green, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, so formal, Mr. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I always thought I was kind of like your uh, surf buddy from the north, you know? So we got to like uh, dude this out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we can we can dude it out. Um, <laughs> as, as you mentioned, you're, you're a San Diego guy originally. Originally, grew up in uh, La Jolla, part of San Diego, and uh, was a long-haired, don't laugh because... All that hair is gone now, but I was a long-haired surfer dude. Uh, yeah, grew up, you know, spent my youth there on the beach, and uh, wonderful, wonderful place. It was great, and there's many aspects of it I still miss. Still have friends and some family down your way. So, uh, yeah, Southern California, San Diego is hometown. Sure. Awesome. What did, now, what did your folks do? My father was an architect in San Diego, had his own firm the entire time from the time I was wee little guy. Um, I was technically made in Japan. My parents were stationed over there. My dad was ROTC when he went to engineering and architectural school in Oklahoma where he met my mom. And then nice. they, when he got out, he had to do his service time for the Army, part of ROTC program. So they went to Japan and then came back. Oh, awesome. Well, I sort of fancy myself a, a Japanophile for, for starters. And then, of course, I've hosted some architects here in the past, and, and I've got uh, another one coming up actually. So, um, also very much into architecture. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, do you remember the first band and or album that you remember being your favorite as a kid? Band or album? Yeah, I do. You're going to laugh at this though, but I was very young. The Monkees. Yeah, of course. My sister and I got one of those little record players that plays 45s yep. and we got monkey albums and the reason i remember them so well there was that tv show and if you go and watch it now on youtube or wherever you watch old shows you just go oh my gosh this is so bad i mean it's beyond horrible but when you're a little kid it was like cool and fun and and they had the monkey mobile i mean the cars so that was kind of cool but my sister was very little and i was putting these records on and she said well how's the sound coming out and i said well the monkeys are inside the box singing and she's like right. the monkeys are in and she was trying to look through the little speaker hole to see if she could see she even went and got a flashlight to shine to see if she could see the the monkey i still tease her about that to this day but uh yeah she was probably four maybe you know and i think oh, I that's was, funny i was six or something like that yeah so yeah it was the monkeys hey, so hey. did that lead you into um did that lead you into the beatles or or anything else oh, of, of course like a similar era uh, of course, yes. And I started playing guitar when I was about six. 
I went and cool. took formal music lessons from a classical guitar teacher that taught scales first and reading music. I, my mom used to put a timer. You, you have to practice 30 minutes every day if oh, I'm going to nice. pay, you know, if I'm going to pay for these. And, you know, when you're a kid, part of you doesn't like, you just want to learn songs. But he taught a different way of, of learning. And I'm glad he did because later on when I was in high school, one of my many part-time jobs was uh, teaching music guitar to younger people. I worked in a music store and taught guitar to little kids and so forth. And uh, that summer job ended not so well, but that's another story. The guy basically didn't pay me all summer and then tried to stiff me at the end of the summer. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. But um, my dad went down and kind of straightened things out for me a little bit. So that's too funny. Yeah. Well, usually when you when when I talk guitars, I, I usually ask, you know, Fender or Gibson. Um, you've got an electric behind you. It looks more like a Fender. Oh, it's a Strat. Yeah, Stratocaster. It is, yeah. yeah, it's a guitar I bought years ago. It was a special edition that Fender made called the Hot Rod model. Again, I'm a car. So you see a theme here? Yeah. I am wearing my, my Alfa Romeo shirt today for you, so... But uh, they made 200 of these, and it's candy apple red, which was the color of my first Schwinn bicycle, something I saved Amazing. up for uh, to buy a Schwinn bicycle. And the pick guard is engine-turned aluminum, wow. which is pretty cool. So when my son was about seven, he wanted to get into the guitar, so we went to Guitar Center. I bought him an electric guitar, and then I bought this one for myself because I'd always wanted a Fender Strat, but I couldn't afford one way back when. Sure. So uh, now I have one hanging on the wall, and I've still got my Washburn. My wife bought me when we got married 36 years ago, and a couple other guitars. Um, yeah, Gibson Les Paul. You know, I mean, just it was fun. It was just uh, we played a little bit in high school, and you know, one of the guys that I played with went on to be a rock star. Uh, Rob Robin Crosby went on to be one of the the lead singer guitarist on Rat. Uh, which Incredible. was one of those 80s band with the big hair and the tight clothes, you know, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So he went on to uh, to be a superstar. Yeah. Music was cool. I love the Beatles, Rolling Stones. Uh, you know, then again, I graduated from high school in 76. So that era was just Led Zeppelin and, you know, I mean, all the pe- all the music. I love listening. I like pretty much all music, except I don't care for rap. In some country western, I have a challenge with, but other parts of country western songs I really like a lot. So classical, opera, I I love music. It's great. Yeah, totally. Did you get to see any of those huge acts live? Oh yeah, Did you go to concerts. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I believe the first concert I went to. <laughs> this is a funny story. I saved up and I was always working for myself, so I did have some money. But I I bought tickets to Fleetwood Mac. Oh, wow. And, okay. Yeah. And they were playing in San Diego. And uh, so I went to pick up my date and I pulled up in my, I was driving a 67 Carmen Ghia back then that I completely restored and went to the door and her dad answers. And her dad was kind of an imposing guy. And he goes, Joan can't go to the concert. She's in trouble. Slammed the door in my face. I'm like, oh, I wonder what happened. So I walk back and she's on the balcony above the garage crying. I'm so sorry. My dad's so mean, you know? And I said, Okay, I you know, so I thought, well, this is a bummer. I don't want to go to a concert by myself. So I went to the concert. This is how naive I was. And I thought, you know, maybe I can get my money back. So I'm scalping tickets in the parking lot. I wasn't trying to sell them for more. I just wanted to get my money back. And I got arrested. Well, arrested by the scalp police at the stadium. Right. And, and they took me into the stadium and into this room. I mean, I was I, I was a good kid. I never broke rules and laws and stuff. I might have speed 
speed a little bit, but you know, I, I mean, I was a good kid and I was, oh, I was horrified. And they're like, do you know, this is illegal. You're scalping. I go, what's scalping? I mean, I'm just like, I, you know, <laughs> I was first year of high school. I just started driving. And so they made me sit there and scared me for a while. And I hear the concert starting. That was the startup band. And I'm thinking, oh man, I should have just gone to this concert. Now I'm screwed. So they took my tickets away. They kicked me out the back door. Don't ever, I guess they kind of figured I wasn't, you know, a criminal. <laughs> you know? Right. And uh, so I drove home with my tw- tail between my legs. And next morning she called. She goes, how was the concert? I said, you won't believe I got arrested. <laughs> and that kind of started to spread around the school a little bit because I was like, the good guy, you know, I didn't, it's like, oh, can you believe Mark Green got arrested? You know, so not really, but kind of, sort of. So yeah, that was my first, my first concert appearance, you know, it's just like, ah, but uh, a lot of music, make your way up to LA, go see some bands up there. But yeah, it was fun. A lot of stuff happening that time in Southern California. Sweet. Well, I mean, you mentioned the Carmen Ghia, which is, you know, pretty iconic and you yeah. restored it. Did you do that work yourself? And, and also what was your first car? Well, uh, my first car I don't like to talk about, but my I will. My neighbor up the street was the general manager at City Chevrolet, which might still be there in Mission Bay. Yep. Yeah. And so he came down to my parents and said, would Mark like, is he going to get a car? Because he's turning 16. And my dad said, well, we told him we would pitch in half towards a car. And so he said, well, I have a really great car that was traded in. That's a perfect starter car. So my dad told me about it. He said, we're going to go down Saturday to City Chevrolet. So I'm, you know, glorious minds that I have. I'm thinking, ooh, Corvette, Camaro. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. So we get down there. We go to the back lots, not even out front. And it's this 1967 Chevy Nova four-door. Total grandma yes. car. The little engine. It ha- still has the plastic seat covers with the little bumps all over them they had back in the 70s and 60s. This car looked brand new, but it was not cool at all. Okay. And so I'm kind of trying to, you know, be very stoic and sense my appreciation for what he's doing. But I'm like, I don't want this car. You know, I like Porsches. And so my dad said, well, how much do you want for it? And he goes, well, look, this little lady traded it in. I'll let Mark have it for 300 bucks. Wow. And so my dad goes, 300? He goes, yeah. And I even put a new set of tires on it and a new battery. I mean, he was giving me the car, really, you know, right. I mean, just, he, he liked me. I took good care of his kids. I watched his kids for him. I think he thought I was a good, a good, uh, role model for his children, perhaps. Cause he had a son that was a little unruly. So, uh, uh, so at any rate, <laughs> we got this car and I kind of drive it home and I I'm like, Oh, this is embarrassing. But since I, my birthday's in January, I was one of the older ones in my group of school. So I was one of the first kids to get my license because I got my mm-hmm. license the day I turned 16. And that car was great because I put those surf racks on it, those old green you know, rubber colored surf racks they used to have back in the day. And I could go and take all my friends surfing. We could throw all our wetsuits in the trunk. You didn't care that much about it. It had those plastic seat covers. So if you're sandy, it didn't matter. It was easy to clean. And so that was my first car. But I saved up as much as I could to get rid of that thing as soon as I could. And in about nine months, I sold it for uh, 950 bucks. Wow. Yeah. Well, he, he, he gave, I even well, he went gave up, it to you. Yeah. I even went up and said, Mr. Brown, I hope you're not offended, but I'm going to sell the car and I want a sports car. And he goes, that's okay. That's cool. He goes, you want to trade it in? And I go, no, because I'm getting 950 bucks for it. And he goes, all right. You know, he was proud because he's a car salesman, right? 
he understood. So I bought a uh, 67 Carmen Ghia that was in Point Loma. Now, La Jolla Point Loma, you know the area, is not that far away. But So I went over there. Well, I hadn't really driven stick cars much. Now, I had a motorcycle that I do, so I understood the clutch and stuff. But So my mom took me over there, and the guy wanted 1200 bucks for it. So I had enough money to pay cash. It was a nice car. It was in good shape. And then he said, okay. And so he goes, you want to take it for a drive? And I looked at the stick and I said, no, why don't you drive me? You know, I was like, uh-oh. And he drove me and it was fine. So my mom says, looks like a deal. I, I handed over the $100 bills. And then my mom said, see you at home. And she left. And I kind of got in the car and he goes, what's wrong? And I said, I've never really kind of driven a stick before. Uh-oh. And yeah. So he said, well, listen, I'll teach you. So he's been about... 15 minutes teaching me just around the block. And uh, he said, you know, just slip the clutch. Slip the clutch if you can't, you know. And so I drove the thing home, petrified. I stalled at every intersection. Uh, you know, I'd come up to some and forget to even push the clutch in, you know. And uh, a couple of times people honking and yelling at me, get out of the way, you know. And I'm like, ah. and But I made it home, and it ended up being a great car. But to answer your question, I promptly took it over to a friend's garage. We stripped it all down. And we painted it in his garage. I sent the engine out, had it modified from a 1600 to a 2110 cc. I knew somebody that his dad had a shop, so I got deals. I bought the parts myself, and and then um, I took the uh, seats down to Tijuana and got them all recovered with leather and uh, corduroy inserts. Put a killer stereo, of course, with big speakers and all the stuff you do. Corduroy, and, yeah, corduroy in the inserts, the middle section with leather on the outside. Incredible. Yeah. Not 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 so friendly with sand and such, however. No, but you know what? Um, you just put a beach blanket down, you know, for surfing and stuff. And I had surf racks on it and everything, but uh, I love that car. And I, we painted it a mixture because I wanted a Porsche but couldn't afford it, of Porsche Guards Red and Porsche Signal Orange. 50, oh, wow. 50-50. And so that car kind of glowed. If you parked it next to a red car, it looked orange. And if you parked it next to an orange car... It looked it red. Looked red. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I blacked out some of the script and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was it was a fun car. I had that car all through high school. I was known as the Gia Kid uh, from all my friends in school. My parents got me a personalized license plate, the old California blue plates. Oh, cool. Yeah. Said, I still have it hanging on my wall, Gia Kid. And a plaque on the dash that they had in gray that said Gia Kid. And I sold that car in college. I had it my first two years in college, and then I had saved up and I bought my first new car, which was a first-gen Scirocco. And I sold that car to this girl who I'd known for a long time who really wanted it. And really sad, uh, about four months later, a friend said, did you see what happened to your car? I think her name was Tracy, if I remember right. And I said, what? He goes, Tracy was hit by a drunk driver. Your car is like totally, total. She's in, she's in the hospital. Oh, no. And I said, what? So I went down to this place. It was real close to my house where they had towed it to. And that car was, I mean, crunched. The whole front end, the roof had wrinkles. I mean, it was horrifying. Right. And the guy came out and he goes, he goes, are you here to pick up the car? And I said, no, but this used to be my car. And he's like, oh, man, I don't know what happened to the gal that was in this car, but I heard she was really hurt. And so he said, we're just going to scrap it. He goes, you want anything from it? And I said, yeah, I'd like to have all the name tags. And he still had the Gia Kid license plate and uh, a bracket. And I, So I just took all the stuff off the car. I still have it all kind of as a memento. And I went to visit her. And, you know, 
her mom gave me a big hug when I walked in the hospital room because she said, you know, you'd put those silly four-point seatbelts in this car because, you know, I like race car guy, you know. Oh, right. It probably it, saved her, huh? Saved her life. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, They had to they had to kind of cut her out of the car because the doors had been squished. I mean, it, she really got popped hard, but, uh, but she survived in... Uh, Thanks to the four-point harness. So thankfully she had them on because they were really kind of a pain in the butt to to wear. But the Gia kid died and uh, long live the Gia kid. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> kind of sad that car went away. So anyway, that was the Gia. That's the Gia story. <laughs> so what what do you think got you into cars to begin with? I mean, just being a, a, a young boy, just loving like matchbox cars? Or like, yeah. what was the impetus? Yeah, that started it. I, I just, my mom said... Vroom, vroom were my first words. I just loved cars. Now, my dad was not really into cars, but his first sports car when I was five was a 1949 MGTC. So that's a pretty unique, you know, car to have to be driving around in. But before that, I was into cars. So I started getting matchbox cars. I still have all of them, whole lots of them, and then evolved into Hot Wheels. I love to make models. So I wouldn't just buy one model, I'd buy three and make one car out of three. So I'd mix and match parts, put two engines in it, and you know, I'd I'd cut things with a hot knife so that I could extend the frame. So I did I was like a car customizer, but oh, wow. in a mo- but I just like that stuff. My dad's creativity as an architect and an artist rubbed off on me. We were always going to art museums and things. And later on, we'll, we may talk about it today, my my career in, in advertising and design. But cars were just always a part of me. I even got a picture of me in my first car, which was a 1958 Garten Cadillac, a pedal car, metal pedal car that my uncle gave me that was his when he was little. And uh, I was think I was about a year and a half old when my mom put me in that thing. I probably couldn't pedal it at that point. But I had that until we moved at one point, and then my mom gave it away. Thanks, Mom. I was so mad. We got to the, I said, where's my Cadillac? She goes, well, you're too big for that. I gave it to the neighbors. I'm like, what? I want to have that for my kids someday. So yeah, but I have a picture. I'll send it to you if you want of me sitting in my, my first car, wind blowing through my hair, uh, driving the, uh, I think it was yellow, but the picture's black and white. This was back from 1960 probably. So yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's so cool. So what were you doing to earn money in high school? What was your first job? Well, uh, I had a job in, in elementary school first. My friend Steve Fitch and I started the Playboy Bar. Okay. So our entrepreneurial, and he's he's been an entrepreneur his whole life. I pretty much have been. So we started this idea of a clubhouse in his garage. We built out this clubhouse inside of his garage, and we called it the Playboy Bar. And we only would let boys come. And we made this big band. We found some old Playboy magazines in the attic that were his dad's. And so we made a collage out of them. Now, this is back when Playboy was pretty tame, okay? I'm, right. I'm not a perv, you know. Play, you know. Right. But, but, you know, young boy, interest, you know, yeah, interesting girls. I get it. Yeah, yep. so we made this big board, and we did a collage. And then we flipped it over and did the other side with Surfer Magazine uh, pictures of surfing. And nice. every Saturday we would open from 10 to 1. And we figured out if you went down to the Alpha Beta grocery store and bought big Alpha Beta brand quart bottles of sodas, we could make drinks and we would sell them for 10 cents a piece. But if you put four ice cubes in the cup, it only cost you about four cents worth of soda, more ice, less drink. They do that in bars to this day. Right. And we would make about, we clear about 20 bucks. 
in an afternoon. Um, his mom would make popcorn, so we'd get them all thirsty. So, you know, like the nuts on the bar, drink more. And then we had surfer magazines there. This guy down the street, his dad was a distributor for liquor. So his dad gave us all these old beer, neon beer signs and, you know, all this stuff. And we, there was another man on the street who was a FBI agent who drank too much. And we would raid his trash can for all the wine bottles. And we filled them with colored water and put lights behind him. Oh my gosh. So you said you're in fifth grade. You're like an 11 year old kid. Doing yeah, this stuff? I think, I think we were 11. Yeah, it was, it was fifth or sixth grade when we started the Playboy bar. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, then my sister and her friends said, could we come and work as waitresses and get tips? And so my sister was, you know, eight or nine. So they would come and they would walk around and serve. I mean, it was hilarious. This is incredible. Yeah. So the in, in fact, it's funny because I'm still friends with Steve. He lives in Europe. He's a venture capital investor and has had this, you know, crazy life. But uh, yeah, that was the that was my first job. And then um, I got... We also started a street newspaper, so we would uh, create a newspaper, and my dad would print it for us, and we tried selling newspapers to everybody on the street and the streets around us, and then we tried to sell advertising in the newspapers, you know, like, do you have anything you want to sell, you know? So that was kind of a fun venture, and then I, uh, let's see, oh, when I was 12, I started detailing cars, so I started my own detailing business, and that started with my next-door neighbor, Mr. Swanser, again, the FBI agent. He right. bought a brand new uh, Mercedes 450 SL when they first came out. And I went over and I said, Mr. Swanser, could I wash your car for you? And he said, yeah, sure. So he even let me back it out. I wasn't even driving. Let me back it out and drive it over in front of our house. And I spent all day on that thing. Brought it back and he said, wow, Mark, this is really nice. This looks better than the day I bought it. And I said, well, thanks. And I started to walk away and he goes, well, wait a minute. How much do I owe you? And I said, you're going to pay me? You're like, ding, ding, ding. And he said, well, I didn't expect you to do my car for free. He goes, I'd like you to clean it every month. And I went, well, I don't know. What do you think it's worth? And he opens his wallet and he goes, how about 20 bucks? Okay, a 12-year-old in the 70s, 20 bucks. I only had to detail three cars and I could buy a new McLeod surfboard. Right. Or a right. GNS yeah. or any, you know. And so I went home going, my dad, I went, oh my gosh. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, because I also had a paper route at that time. I got up at 4.30 in the morning and delivered. I had 65 customers. I get on my Schwinn bicycle and, you know, put papers over my shoulder and deliver papers before I had to go to school. And so my dad said, you seem to like that. Why don't you start your own detailing business? So he helped me create a flyer. The name of the company was Auto Care. And, you know, <laughs> what do you do? Auto Care. And uh, we even had a picture of a turbo that um, he drew for me from a Porsche Turbo from the 70s, which I now have a real one of those in my garage. And so I started this business. And I'll tell you, that business took me all the way through high school, and it paid for my four years of college education. It was a great business, great learning tool. I learned so much about communication, business. I even tried hiring some people, and that's when I found out that having employees sucks. So uh, (laughs) Because they don't show up, and they don't want to work hard, then they want more money, you know, all the usual stuff that you find out later in life. So, uh, yeah. So so crazy. Yeah, so I was always kind of hustling, you know, because my parents, they didn't do allowances. My dad came from farm stock, grew up on a farm in Texas, and he said, you know, if you want to make money, you got to work. Right. You know, and all my friends, I mean, La Jolla was a pretty affluent place, and all my friends were getting money from their parents and they didn't have to work. And I thought, oh, maybe that's what life's like. But thank goodness my dad taught me otherwise. Yeah, totally. So where'd you end up? Did you go to college? Yes, I went to uh, UCSD 
for two years, and that's where I met my wife. And then I ended up transferring to San Diego State because I, those first two years, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, mm-hmm. I had two different majors, and I was like, I can't figure this out. But a guy that was a friend of my dad's who was a landscape architect, he hired me to do drawing for him, uh, technical drawings of irrigation systems. Mm-hmm. And so that was another side hustle that I had. And I'd do it. I'd pick the plans up on a Sunday night, and I'd have to return them on a Friday. And right. so I learned how to use a rapidi- – I don't know if you – rapidiograph pens. You know what those are? Not by name, but I'm sure if I saw yeah, one, Yeah, they're, they're like a pen it. that you fill with ink, and they have a little barrel tip, and they come with different thicknesses, and you can draw different lines with them. You just don't want to make a mistake because you've got to start almost all over. You can't erase them and stuff. But I was right. real careful, real technical. So I did that, and then he said, hey, you're pretty good at stuff. Would you like to design a new business card for me? And I went, okay. And he goes, here's my name. Come up with some drawings and ideas. So I did. And he, and he said, this is really good. You should be a graphic designer. And I said, what's that? He goes, well, there are people that do advertising. And so that kind of led to later in school going, maybe that's what I want to do. So I transferred to San Diego State, which had a, a design, graphic design department. And, it, you know, and then I thought I should learn business. So I minored in business. So I would go over to the business school and put on my you know, my button down shirt half the time and then take that off and put on my crazy wild coogee sweater or whatever it was back then and be an art, you know, be an artist. So I was kind of doing this left brain, right brain thing on the campus, but I started a graphic design business in college. And so instead of doing the projects, the professors wanted, I asked them if I could do real projects for clients that would pay me, which would in turn pay for my college on top of the car detailing I was doing. So again, kind of hustling lots of different balls all the time. That's probably why I literally never went to one party in college ever. I oh, worked, that's so funny. I was working all the time. Yeah. Gotcha. Just, yeah. To keep my surfboards new and my car with cool wheels and engines. And, you know, like I said, my second year in college, I bought a brand new car, paid cash for a brand new Scirocco. Um, Amazing. Yeah, down there next to City Chevrolet. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T 
O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O, or visit them at contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. All right. So after college then, I guess, is that approximately when you started or continued your graphic design business? Or Yes. Yes. I okay. got an internship at a small agency in San Diego called Warner Design. Uh, okay. Great guy named Richard Warner. He had three women working for him and they were in an old house. You know that really steep part of Laurel Street there when you come up from the airport? Um, yes. And head into the Balboa Park, that really steep part. He yes. was right at the base of that. And there was an old house there that he had rented part of it out. It was actually the garage. It was an old Victorian home. And so cool. I got an internship my senior last semester at school. And it was a paid internship because I was always trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, I didn't do anything for free. Everything was, how could I work and make some money to pay? Because I was, I was uh, renting a large house in Pacific Beach and then subletting three of the bedrooms. And oh. so I put my name on the lease, but I could lease the bedrooms for enough that I could live there for free. Gosh, so, yeah. so I lived Wheeler there for- and dealer. Yeah, I lived there for free for uh, three years and it had a three-car garage and that's where I did all my detailing. So I had a full detail shop set up in there and I always parked my car in there because I was picky about my car. And one of my roommates wanted to pay, so I charged him more to park his car in there at night. And so anyway, but that worked out great. So I got a, ended up getting hired by Richard Warner. And my first job there was a paste-up artist. This is before computers. There I aged myself even more again. And I, my desk literally was in a closet. There was this little closet off of the hallway and they took the doors off and put a desk. I think they used the door, closet door, as my desk. And I was a paste-up artist. So that was my first job. And about six months in, I went to Richard and I said, how can I make more money? And he said, well, bring in work because he basically would go out every day and meet with people and bring the work back for us to do. And I said, okay, how do I do that? And he said, well, why don't you put a suit on Friday and come with me downtown San Diego? We walk into high rise buildings. We look at the big plaque board, look at, we were doing mostly commercial real estate work at the time. And we go up and try to get past the receptionist so we can meet with somebody to, and so I learned from him. He was really great. And that fast forward, that evolved into my partial equity ownership in the company. So I would get a percentage of all the work I brought in on top of the work that I did. And I even said, well, since I'm working Thursdays and Fridays as an account executive, could I do the work I would have done in those days on the weekend so that I could get paid my full-time job as a paste-up creative guy, but also be bringing in the work? And he's like, well, if that's what you want to do. And I said, yeah, yeah, I want to make more money. So, so I was even kind of juggling balls there, but I was there for 11 years and, uh, great, great job. We built that company up. I think when I left, there was close to 20 people working there. He had since we had grown so much, he'd bought an old house in old town and turned it into an office building. And I helped with the design of that because my dad was an architect. So I, so we built that out and so forth. And, uh, yeah, and that led to one of the accounts I landed, which was a startup called Griot's Garage, car care and tool business, catalog business, again, pre-internet. And uh, that job I brought in because I like cars. Uh, this is a cool account. And eventually I became friends with the owner of that company. And it was still very small. There was only four people. And he said, do you want to come and join me and help build this brand? 
Yeah. And I took a huge gamble because it meant moving. He wanted to move up here to the Pacific Northwest. We had to leave our whole family. My wife was a civil engineer. Um, she's the smart one in the house. And so she, you know, would we brought our, our two kids. They were real little, five years old and five months old. And uh, she came up here and I said, you know, why don't you stay home? I'll just start working so you can raise our kids and don't have to work anymore. And so she retired 20, 29, I think it was, 28. And uh, yeah, so that led to Griot's Garage, which I was there for 20 plus years uh, doing everything from marketing, advertising, merchandising. That's why, Wesley, when I had you on my show, we talked about this. I love what you're doing because I did that. I went out and sourced products, branded products, designed products. We sold those things for the garage. So car care products, we developed a whole line of car care products. I designed bottles. I wrote manuals on how to use things. I designed packaging, um, graphics, ended up designing our corporate headquarters. So I got to be creative and business-like. I traveled the world looking for products. I got to start vintage racing, did that for 12 years. So I got to work in my passion tied with my love for cars and for business. Uh, It was really a a tremendous opportunity, even though I had to sell my convertible 911 because it didn't do too well in the rain and buy a coupe when we moved up here. Yeah, no kidding. So, okay, so obviously you you relocated to the Pacific Northwest. Where specifically? Uh, 27 years ago, we moved to Gig Harbor, which is an hour south of Seattle. It's a little kind of kind of like Sausalito is to San Francisco a little bit, although sure. we've got Tacoma in between us. But uh, our offices originally, when we moved here, we're in Tacoma. But Gig Harbor is a beautiful little community, kind of isolated away from a busy city. The Puget Sound, it's a beautiful place. Not much surfing. <laughs> Like, I was yeah. That was my next question. Is like, what kind of adjustments were made just from a lifestyle perspective, given uh, that you have a such a rich surf history? Everything, everything. It was a major, major move. I, if you think about it, uh, Jill and I did all the stress points that you could have in a marriage, except for divorce, uh, right. all at one time. She quit a career she'd been in that was very lucrative, and she she's a very smart, loves the challenge, you know, mathematics and engineering. We had two little kids. I changed careers and businesses completely. We moved to a completely foreign place where we knew nobody. We left all of our family, all of our support, our parents, her parents, cousins, you know, all those people. We left everybody and came up here. And Gig Harbor then was pretty small place. You know, there was like two decent restaurants and one grocery store, you know, coming from Southern California and the weird thing was also culturally it was very different because I'd go to the grocery store in Del Mar and there'd be Porsches and Mercedes. And up here I was like the only guy driving a bright red Porsche. And I kind of got the stink guy from some people at the time, you know. Yeah, kind of the old like who does this guy think he is kind Yeah, of thing. and I'll never forget one of the first things we saw was this pickup truck at a gas station that on the back had painted die yuppie scum go back to California you know so it's like really yeah so it was like oh because they you know what's happening was a lot of migration out of California again 27 years ago and Washington State was a different place than it is now and they didn't like people moving up here and raising the price of real estate you know so it, it just happens everywhere right I mean San Diego if you look at North County San Diego could go and buy a house in Lucadia, Cardiff, Encinitas, Oceanside. I mean, now those are all multi-million dollar homes if you want to be anywhere near the the ocean. Uh, you know, even Del Mar back then was not that expensive, but everything changes. So yeah, so it was a major adjustment. And then for my wife, Jill, 
to go from being a, a, a professional working in an office using her brains all day to being an at-home mom with no support, very hard for her. And honestly, I was working so much. I mean, I was working such long hours. I moved the the business up here, Grio's business up here, and I was here for two months before we physically moved the company, hiring people, putting our new warehouse together, getting the offices all set up. I was actually, we didn't have a house yet, so I was living in my business partner's empty house he had bought on a mattress on the floor, um, and then every other weekend I'd fly back to San Diego. We had sold our house. So Joe was living with her parents for two months with two little kids, which they loved, but it was, you know, not the best thing. So it was, yeah. And then when she came up here again, I was, I worked a lot of hours. I mean, a lot of hours. It's, I treated that company, well, I was part owner, so I treated it as my own. So it was just weekends and all the time. And then I was traveling a lot. I'd go to Europe three, four times a year for seven to 10 days on business trips to look at factories and look for products to buy, go to big trade shows and so forth. So it was a huge adjustment. It was very challenging for both of us, probably more for my wife because she was at home here with kids and like needed this mental stimulation of business, you know, and didn't have any friends. And also coming from Southern California, I remember one day I came home, she goes, I think we moved into Vampire Village. Oh no. And I go, why? And she goes, there's no people. Like, nobody's outside. Well, we moved here in April. It rains a lot up here. It's gray. The days are short. You know, Southern California, everyone's outside. T-shirts, flip-flops, go to the beach. Yoo-hoo, you know? And so culturally, uh, physically, mentally, every, yeah, it was it was a challenge. I look back down and I, you, you forget pain. You know, you just do what you do. What you do. But, but it was a great experience. It, was, it enabled us to do a lot of things, enabled her to stay home raise the kids because real estate prices we bought when there was a recession. So we took, we went from a smaller house to like double the size in this private gated golf course. Our friends thought we'd like hit the jackpot, but it's just because the house was so much less expensive than down there. You know, nice home. I, we still live in it. It's a great, was a great community to raise our kids. Very safe. There's a country club, swimming pools, tennis courts, horses. I mean, you know, beautiful place. It's away from, the mainstream city, but it was a good move. And in hindsight was, was a great thing. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I don't want to glaze over this because I think it's an important thing to, to talk about, but a lot of people are in relationships, marriages, otherwise, like, what do you think was like the characteristics or the kind of tips and tricks to keep those waters calm with so many outside forces being so rough. And I mean, aside from just compromise to the nth degree, like mm-hmm. what do you think? I mean, obviously you're still married. So yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, which is, which is kind of rare these days. Yeah, um, 36 years. What, well, congratulations. What, what would you attribute that to? Well, uh, we love each other. That goes a long way. Um, support, supporting each other. Uh, Jill's a a saint. Um, she just never, she's not a whiner. I mean, she, even when I get, you know, the man gets the cold and it feels so good. Well, suck it up, dude. You know, suck it up, buttercup. You got a cold. What's so wrong with that? You know, I mean, she just doesn't, she's not a complainer. She's, um, I think that helps, but I tell you something, my grandfather, my grandparents were married a little over 70 years. My dad's parents, they were farmers in Texas. He was, I think she was 15. He was 17 when they got married, something like that. And I asked my grandfather, he was here for our wedding. Uh, We got married in La Jolla, the Presbyterian church there. And uh, 
I said, Grandpa, what's the secret to a long marriage? And he said, well, do everything she says. And <laughs> my grandmother gave him an elbow to the ribs, and she said, don't lie to the boy, Bill. And my grandfather, I didn't know him that well. He lived a long way away. We didn't get to visit him very much. I remember when we would do our monthly phone call, my mom would literally put a egg timer and my sister and I had three minutes to talk because long distance calls were expensive. And so we had three minutes to talk to him. So I didn't really know the guy that well. So having a visit was kind of special. And then he got really serious. He was always kind of a jokester, kind of a, he was a cowboy, real cowboy, rode a horse up until Bobby the day he passed away. And he said, no, here's the secret, Mark. He said, you need to be willing to give more than you expect back all the time. And if you do that, and if she does that, you'll have a great life. Sure. And I've always tried to remember that when I'm feeling maybe a little selfish or not getting enough attention or something. And I've always tried my best to do that. And Jill's, like I said, she's great. She's fantastic. She doesn't complain. She just, and to this day, she has said, that move, while it was really hard, really hard, leaving family, she said that gave me a gift that looking back now is the best gift ever. And that was the gift of staying home and raising my own children. And not a lot of people can do that. You know, they, they either put themselves in a financial position. I mean, we came up here, we had to sacrifice. We stopped eating out all the time. We stopped, you know, before we were making good money, go buy whatever you want. And Griot's was still growing, so it wasn't paying me what it did later to where we could do whatever we wanted. And I could, you know, enjoy racing and have fun and send the kids to private school, which we did and all that, but in college and pay for all that stuff. But those early days, um, you know, she just, she said that was a gift that you can never get back. And, and I see young, I, I, you know, frustrating for me for young couples today that can't do that, that they want to, that feel they can't. And I always say, you can if you really want to, but you have to sacrifice. You have to give some stuff up. And you, the value of being old is you realize what's important that you don't when you're young. And all those things, those material things, which believe me, I like cool stuff. I like cars, you know. I mean, I, I've always been into cool stuff, but my wife is not materialistic, never has been. And I think that came from growing up in a military family where they moved a lot. And so she couldn't take a lot of things with her. So she learned that things are anchors that keep you tied. And that's a great saying because if you're somebody that likes to be fluid and move, and my kids are kind of that way, they like to be able to go do things, not acquire things. And they're doing fine, really well financially, but they like adventures and travel versus, you know, fancier car, picket fence, all that kind of thing. And maybe that's a cultural thing that's happened in the country. I don't know. For some people, you know. I mean, if you go on Instagram, you think everybody wants to be rich all the time, right? Kardashians and, you know. Right, sure. Yeah, but I, that's fake. Well, not for them. They are rich, but they, they, right, right, they right, fake. But right. you know what I mean? For other people trying to show what they have, but they really don't and all that kind of thing. So uh, it's just trusting each other and being attuned to each other's sensitivities and really trying to pay attention, which she did way more than I'm sure I did. So Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we need to mention the podcast, obviously. Cars Yeah Podcast is is your podcast. Yes. Um, let's talk about early days, the beginnings. What? Why'd you start it? Mm -hmm. How deep into it are you now? And, and I mean, because you're full bore. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, as I said, I've been with Grio. I was with Grio's 20 plus years. And then things were changing there. It... Uh, 
It just was not what it used to be. Wasn't happy. Um, very uncomfortable. And I thought, you know what? I need to go do something different. I think some, there's a couple of catalysts that happened in our life that really helped push me along. My business partner had decided to change what the future looked like because he wanted to bring his kids into the business. And I didn't want to do that. And at the time, my father had just broken his neck. He was 80 years old. He lived in San Diego. Uh, I lost him about four and a half years ago, but he, at the time, he was oh, very sorry. healthy, very vibrant. Thank you. Very vibrant and uh, architect, a builder. He had semi-retired, but was doing lots of projects. And he had fallen off of a deck he was building in uh, Hillcrest there in a canyon and broke his neck. Uh, C2 vertebrae. I mean, the doctor said he did the Christopher Reeve break. He should have been paralyzed or dead. And uh, he was in very good health, though. He was very athletic, went to the gym every day, ate well. Um, and that probably is what saved his life. So he was going through all that re- rehabilitation stuff, really a challenge for him. Uh, at the same time, Jill's mom got cancer. And so that was really scary and challenging. She had already lost her dad to that. And so we're like, oh my gosh, we got these two parents that are distant. We need to try to figure out how to help them. And then my wife got a um, tumor in her leg. And it, it resulted in a very serious surgery and kept her off her feet for months. And so she needed to be cared for. So it was kind of a combination of those things that said, okay, maybe it's time to readjust, refocus. Now, we had just finished putting our daughter through college. She went to University of Redlands, graduated, okay. and my son was attending his first year at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. Great uh, school. Awesome school. Also taking courses at Brown. And so I decided to take this big, bold leap. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I had to take care of my wife. I mean, she literally couldn't walk. I had to carry her to the restroom and she'd bathe her. And it was, it was a whole weird reversal of, you know, she was always the caring mom, taking care of everybody. I'd get up, she'd have breakfast ready for me, make me lunch, have dinner ready when I got home. Never complained about me showing up late, which I always was late for dinner. Uh, Cause you know, there's always something else to keep you at the office. And uh, so this whole thing flipped flop. Plus we were empty nesters, which was a weird thing we'd been going through. Just odd. You know, sure. nobody in the kids' bedrooms every night. It's like, uh, kind of sad. You know, my kids are great. I love them. And, you know, now I, I don't know if I want them living here all the time, but, you know, but that's, they're supposed to be on their own, right? But I love Don't it. worry, Mark. It goes for us kids too. Do you? you know, the other way around. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> we well, don't want to live with our parents either. <laughs> well, probably not the healthiest thing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, at any rate, I, I was home and I was really kind of ner- getting nervous because for the first time in my life, I wasn't bringing money in. Now, luckily, we'd saved. We'd had a good land- launch landing pad, as they call it. And so, you know, we'd go for a while. But I, I knew I didn't want to retire. I, I wanted to keep um, – my financial advisor says, I don't think you'll ever retire. It's not in your genes. I said, well, I don't sit around very well, you know, I, unless I'm doing something. So uh, my son had come home from college and – we were walking, and it was a reverse of roles. The son usually says, Dad, what should I do with my life? And I said, Son, what should I do with my life? It was a very <laughs> weird thing. And he said, Dad, you've been taking me to car shows and vintage races my whole life. I mean, my son's been to Pebble Beach Car Week 18 times. I've been 30 times. He used to come to the track with me when I was racing. And I always brought him so I could teach him how to be around adults. I taught him to go up and shake people's hands and talk to people. And he said, those lessons are invaluable. They still serve him to this day. In fact, I talked to him this morning and he mentioned it again uh, about those lessons were so important and helped him in his business career. He's got an awesome career now. And so um, he said, 
you know, you've always taken me to car shows. You love talking to people about cars, obviously. That's my, been my career. But you also like talking about business. Why don't you do that for a living? Right. And I said, okay, let me explain to me how I make money so I can pay your massive tuition bill going to car shows. Because those usually cost a lot of money. And he said, no, 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 no. He goes, why don't you start a podcast? And I literally, Wesley, I said, what's that? I'd kind of heard about it. Now, this was... Because what year is this? This was eight years ago. Yeah. So I, I kind of heard about it, but not really. You know, I'd like... I was so busy. I wasn't even on social media. I was so busy all the time. I, I didn't have a Facebook account. None of that stuff. I, I didn't even like it. I was like... In fact, I was too busy trying to worry about my kids not being on that stuff and monitoring what they were doing, you know? Right, right, And right. so... Just so they wouldn't be harmed. I, they're great kids, but, they, you know, just... There's predators out there, right? So... Right. So... um I started looking into it and I got connected with this guy named John Lee Dumas, who had a podcast that my son had been listening to while he was in school called Entrepreneur on Fire. And this is a guy that had started about two years before and had become very successful with a podcast where he interviews entrepreneurs seven days a week. First guy to ever do seven day a week podcast. Yeah. He'd come from failed careers. He was in his early 30s, didn't know what he wanted to do. And he had created something on the cutting edge of when podcasting was really happening. And so at that time you could join his organization, pay a one-time fee to get your foot into his training center. Cause that was another thing that he did was create a way to teach you how to be a podcaster so that you could get up to speed much faster. And so I did that. And then I started calling people, trying to talk to people who are podcasters. Many of them never returned my call, would never talk to me. Some would, you know, and I've remembered that because I've had, I've mentored and coached a lot of people since then that have called and said, I want to start a car podcast and I take time and I help them. And some people have even hired me for me to train them how to get up to speed faster because it took me, I mean, I worked night and day. Now, again, I was caring for my wife, so I was kind of awake all the time anyway. And so I worked late into the night. Even my neighbors would say, Mark, do you like work all night? Your light's on all night long. And I go, Yeah. But in three months, I came up with the concept of cars, yeah. In fact, Jill was the one that came up with the name. I tried to find a domain, even then, with the word cars in it that was not taken. It, I couldn't find one. I'm a creative guy. I, I was a marketer. I came up with logos and brands, and I could not find one. And one night, we were watching a commercial, and it was for Hotels.com, I think, and it said, Hotels, yeah. And she said, Cars, Yeah. And I went, what? She goes, cars, yeah, go see if it's taken. So I ran and looked on Bluehost, you know, and nobody had it. Isn't that funny? Like when you come to that realization, you like run to the computer as though like somebody's going to take it like in the next two seconds. You know, (laughs) I've I've done the same thing. I will tell you, I've looked at other domains. I think somebody at these GoDaddies and stuff are watching. And when they see one or two people, they take them. And then they sell them back to you for more. I, I'm convinced that's what's going because I've done it with other things I've been developing, and all of a sudden it's taken the next day, and they want to charge you two hundred ninety nine dollars instead of ninety nine cents or whatever it is, you know. So yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a version of real estate, you know. It is. So at any rate, I created created the whole idea, wrote a massive way more than I need a business plan. Uh, I emulated a lot of what John Lee Dumas did, and I decided I was going to launch on May 28th, which was exactly one year from the day I left Grio's Garage. I wanted to change the meaning of that day in my life. It was a personal psychological thing. 
No, I get so, it. Yeah. So, so I did. Well, I was about a week away. I, I, I could design stuff, but I'd never built a website. So I built my whole website. I learned how to do all that watching you. I watch more YouTube. I learned how to record, you know, as you and I do, uh, how to record, how to edit. Uh, some of the, what John Lee Dumas did taught me how to do some of that, you know, all the little nuts and bolts to what we do that people think they don't even think exist that make it this challenging to do well and why a lot of people don't stick with it because it's just a lot of work. And I made a very bold decision that I was, I was going to be the only car podcast with five shows a week. I couldn't find anybody else that was doing that. There were a few that were big guys like Adam Carolla had his car cast, but he was already an entertainer for decades. And, uh, NPR had their car talk show, but they'd been around for 20 years doing radio and stuff. So, but nobody did that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be bold because I want to build this brand as fast as I can so I can get advertisers, which is how you make money mostly in podcasting. There's been other avenues that have happened for me as well, but I need to build it super fast because I, I'd set a time limit. I had to make money in the first year or I was going to go do something else. Go. I, I had interviewed at other places, headhunters had called me, but I, I didn't want to work for someone else anymore, uh, technically, even though with Grios I was part owner. It was still, he had, you know, majority ownership. Majority so. share, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so launched on that day. I literally was two days away from launching. I had no guess. I had not convinced any, I mean, I was calling every friend I had and they'd say, a po- what's a podcast? Is that like a radio or something? And a lot of people go, well, Mark, I, you know, seems weird. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not so sure. And I, I was begging people. And I fortunately had a PR person named Cindy who was very nice. I'd known her and helped her uh, in my past business. And she said, I have a a get, or a client who I want to be your first guest. And it was Rick Cole of Rick Cole Auctions, the first guy to do car auctions during Pebble Beach Car Week. And I literally interviewed him the day before my show went live. He was in an airport. So the audio quality sucked. <laughs> you know, you kept hearing this, ready for flight number 555. And I'm like, you'd have to stop. And you know, it was just like, oh gosh. And it wasn't good, but I did it. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, now I got to find one for Tuesday and then for Wednesday. And so it's just hustle. I'm used to hustle, uh, you know, so calling people, sending out emails. And so I developed this whole business plan of these days is I did this, then I did this, then I did this. And so you fast forward about three, four months later, and I get a call from this guy who was running a company his grandfather started called NoCo Battery Chargers. And he said, hey, I found your podcast really cool. He goes, could I advertise? And I just about fell down. <laughs> I'm like, can you advertise? I about cried. And uh, he goes, yeah, like how much do you charge? And I'm like, I had no idea. I mean, I just... I forget what I quoted some ridiculously. He goes, okay, that's cool. So I'll never forget, Wesley, that first time that I stood in my driveway, almost really teared up looking at that check going, okay, validation. That's amazing. Now what? That's so, really cool. So that was the beginning, but it's just, you know, it's it's hard work. And this morning I, I recorded my 1,935th show. Yeah, I think I was, was I eight? 1999. Um, you know, I'd have to look uh, because it's getting harder and harder for me to uh, <laughs> to remember all of this because I've interviewed so many people now that it's kind of crazy. I'll, I'll go to events and 
people will say, have you ever interviewed? Yeah, you were 1899. Yeah, good memory. Um, yeah, you were September 10th. Uh, well, that's year. easier for me to remember than it would be for you to remember, <laughs> to be fair. So, um, well, that's crazy. I remember during that conversation, I can't remember if it, was, if, if it, aired, if it made the edit or not, but mm-hmm. I think you had mentioned that you, you've owned 12 Porsches. Yeah, uh, lots and I, I love Porsches, my car of choice. If you right. will. what do you love about Porsche? Well, I like the German factor because I like things that are well designed and well engineered. That's always been part of my deal. My dad always taught me to buy the best you can afford, but wait until you can pay cash for it. So save up, but don't settle. That's why when I had enough money to buy up my first bicycle. He said, well, what do you want? I said, I want a Schwinn Stingray. Well, they were about $20 more. And he said, well, don't buy a Huffy. You'll never be happy with it. Earn a few more dollars and buy the Schwinn. And that always kind of stuck in my mind. So, But Porsches, there was a guy that lived up the street from us in La Jolla that was a bachelor, had a little speedster. And Sweet. that always, you know, I've always loved to have one of those. They've gotten ridiculously unobtainium. But uh, the first one I bought was the 1974 uh, Red 74911S. Our daughter was only like six months old, I think, and uh, saved up and bought that thing. And it had been restored, and it was garage red and so forth. But, uh, you know, Porsche to me is a great all-around usable sports car. I've taken them to track days. You can drive them to work. They're comfortable. They're very reliable if you take care of them, like any car. Uh, Yeah, they're a little more expensive, of course, but... They're just, I just love the whole idea and the fact that Porsche 911s have basically been the same for like 65 plus, I mean, years just about. They came out in 65 when the first 911 appeared. And if you look at one today, yeah, they're they're bigger, broader, all this stuff, but they're kind of the same. Rear engine, uh, air-cooled, well, not air-cooled anymore, but it just, I love that whole thing. German cars have always been my carb choice. I've also had a lot of BMWs. Uh, I've got an M3. I've had four of those uh, as daily drivers on top of the 911. So I never raced a 911 though. I, I you know, I, I kind of always wanted to, but I liked racing when I was racing vintage cars that were proper real race cars to begin with. I raced a Lotus 16 and a Lola T270 sports racer. Those cars were built only to race. And a lot of Porsches, although they make Porsche race cars, are street cars converted. But I, I always... I don't know why I never did. I, I probably should have. But uh, yeah, I, and my still have, I have a 911 in the garage today that's an extremely rare uh, paint-to-sample 87 Turbo that I found on eBay about 12 years ago. Incredible. Yeah. Is that your favorite? What's been the favorite Porsche of the uh, of the 12? Oh, that's like my favorite child. I mean, you can't ask me that. <laughs> Come on, Wes. Um, Everybody's got a favorite child. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, and for different reasons, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, well, you know, they all are kind of different in their different ways. But my 993, I had a 993 4S that I really liked. Uh, I love that body style. The body style was cool. It was a big leap for Porsche from the model to 964 before. Huge leap. Everything was changed. The car handled better. It didn't have that rear end rotation they have when when you go through a corner and stand on it and the back end swaps and you crash. Yeah, the hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I tell you, when we got married and we were married in 84, um, in the 70s, Porsche came out with a car called a Turbo. 
big fat tail, you know, a tail in the back, the teacup they call it, but ended up being the whale tail, big fat fenders, fastest car, street car you could buy at the time, supercar for his day. Nowadays, a Camry could probably beat it, but back then it was the, the thing to have. And I, oh my, I remember a kid in school's dad had one. Oh man, someday I'm going to have one of those. And then they didn't import them for a while because of DOT regs. And then they came back with them in the, the 80s. And I remember just thinking, oh, but I was newly married, new house, kids. I I couldn't afford a Porsche Turbo. I was driving a, uh, what did I have at that time? Well, I bought, I bought my first one. And then after that, I bought an 84 Cabriolet, which nice. I used to commute in every day uh, from Del Mar down to Old Town, San Diego, you know, top down all the time. It was awesome. And so that 993 4S was cool. Uh, I liked that a lot. Um, I had a 72 911S that was pretty much a toy car, but I drove it a lot. My kids learned how to drive stick shift in that car, learned how to drive in that car. That car, my son and I took on a lot of tours and rallies. We drove it all over the place. Uh, It escalated in value massively and ended up paying for the last three years of his college education. So uh, that was a, I've been lucky with investments in cars, just pure luck. I don't buy them to, resell them or make money. I just buy what I like. The car I have now though is special because it reminds me of what I wanted. And that's what a lot of car guys do. They buy what they couldn't afford when they were young. Mm. And what makes it really insane is it's one of only three cars in this color. It was special ordered by a dealer in the Midwest in a part of a Porsche has a program called paint to sample where you can order a car in almost, almost any color, not every color, but um, unless you're Jerry Seinfeld or the Sultan of Brunei. And this car was special ordered in a six-stage metallic orange. And I know we're on Skype now. And if you look over my shoulder, there we go. That painting on my wall is a Russian Cars Yeah podcast listener who's an artist. And he sent me that. He painted that and sent it to me. Um, I wanted to have him on my show, but he doesn't speak English. And it's me in my orange crush. I call my car my orange crush because it's my, I have a crush on it. And I've had it for about 12 years. So it, that car, maybe I'm like Dr. Porsche. He always used to say, my favorite Porsche is the next one. Right. My favorite Porsche is the one I have right now. Amazing. So, yeah. So um, the turbo is really special. It's that old analog kind of thing. You get in the car, smell. It's all original. It's only got 60,000 original miles. But it just brings me back to those early days of Porsche and... You know, people have asked me, I've got people who want to buy it from me, and I go, well, you'd have to offer me such a ridiculous amount, but I have to be careful because I said I would never sell my 72, and somebody offered me a ridiculous amount of money, and I said yes, and he actually paid it. So it would take a lot, but uh, you know what I've never had is a brand new one. I've always wanted to be able to order one from the factory, right? but I have a hard time paying for new cars because it ridiculous depreciation waste of money yeah, yeah it's a stupid yeah. way to spend your money although i i say that having bought lots of new cars over the years but you well know. you could you could spec a gt3 and probably never lose a dime these days well we're in a <laughs> weird warp right now when it comes to cars yeah it, whatever the heck's going on right now in the car market is looney tune and yeah. this if i wanted to sell my car probably this would be the right time i could probably get Maybe that ridiculous price somebody would have to write for it, but um, right. But, but then you, know, you can't buy anything in its place. Well, <laughs> that's like yeah. I mean, there's a problem, right? Yeah. What yeah. What are you going to buy? Everything's escalated. It's kind of like real estate right now. So yeah, you know, your house is worth how much? Well, you got to go live somewhere. 
Right, right. Uh, well, you mentioned the uh, the E46 M3 that you've had since new, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, four. Bought that car new. I've had four of them. I had two E36 M3s, and then I bought the the new E46 when it came out in 01. I sold that to a coworker of mine and bought my 993, and then sold the 993 because somebody offered me a crazy price for it. Made money on the car after driving it for three, four years, and then reordered another M3, almost identical, because my commute was really kind of bad, and I wasn't fun commuting in that Porsche. And because the guy offered me so much, I thought, well, I'm not going to keep it. Now, of course, hindsight, now those cars are worth uh, even a lot more than I sold my car for, but who, yeah, who'd have who thought? Cares? Yeah, I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't look back, right? Otherwise, I would have bought a lot of Apple stock and Tesla <laughs> right. stock and Amazon stock. And yeah, you'd be... You'd be uh, talking to me from my yacht right now. So, but uh, yeah, the the M3s are what got me on the track. I did uh, track days with the club, uh, bought slicks on that E36, drove the pants off of those two cars, and then got into the E46, took that to the track. Uh, and it was just a fun car to go fast and then got into racing. But this car I've had 16 years, and I I just can't get rid of it. It's... I don't like the models after it. They've gotten too big and heavy and they don't look, I don't like the way they look and the new ones with those horrible giant grills. I can't, can't do that. Oh yeah. The brand new ones yeah, are just uh, Weird. Yeah. I don't know what, who's thought that the Lexus grill look was good, but everybody seems to be following that. So I love my car. It's great. In fact, I'll tell you the other day I was, uh, I went over to Home Depot and this young kid, um, he probably was in his mid twenties, late twenties, pulled in next to me and I came out to my car and he goes, is this your car? And I go, yeah. And he goes, you want to sell it? And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> for the right price. He goes, well, how much? And I go, offer me something. He goes, was, have you had any, so you know, anyway, we start talking. I tell him he's getting all lathered up and everything, you know, it's like, and he goes, these cars are worth a lot of money now. And they have, they went through their depreciation. Now they're coming back up. And I've seen some on bring a trailer that are commanding 35, $45,000. And my car is perfect. Never in an accident. It's absolutely. What color is it? It's silver with a red interior. Competition oh, package. Yeah, it's got a comp yep. package. Uh, ordered it with every option except for the navigation because I figured that's going to be obsolete, you know. Uh, and now we all have phones that tell us where to go. So, you know, but it's a wonderful car. I love it. It just does everything. You hit that sport button. I remember my kids were little. I go, hit the sport button. And, you know, it's like the turbo, the turbo lag kicking in in my turbo, which is very real. If you've ever driven an old turbo, you got to be very careful and make sure you're pointing that car forward. When my son drove that car the first time, I said, okay, we're going to go out where there's nobody and I want to show you what turbo lag is. And I said, okay, stand on it. And he, you know, he stood on it and we went fast. And then all of a sudden he goes, I'm counting my head, 1,001, 1,002, 1,000. And then the thing just kick and he's like whoa what's happening you know said just point keep going straight don't turn the steering wheel you know so oh man that's hilarious yeah well you seem to be really drawn to red you know i was a red car guy for a long time and then when i found my cabriolet i went to buy a red coupe in point loma because i was moving up here and i knew my my cabriolet was not waterproof those old porsches were not waterproof i mean the water actually leaked through the canvas top it was an it was an 84 visoc edition car euro car gray market car very very cool all sorts of cool mods and i went over there and i drove down the wrong street 
and there was this guy pulling this beautiful platinum, which is a bronze metallic color, dark brown, chocolate brown, leather interior, chocolate top onto the street with a for sale sign. And I went, hmm. So I turned around and went back and talked to him. And I said, this is cool. Well, he didn't know what he had. Uh, he, plus he'd gotten in trouble. He was fooling around on his wife, got caught by his wife with his girlfriend in that car. Oh, wow. Thankfully they reconciled. He found his way. She gave him another chance, but she said that car's got to go. So he had to get rid of it. Like, you know, so I never even went to look at the red coupe I was going to look at because he threw this number at me and I knew Porsche prices. And I'm like, this thing is like so much cheaper and it had low miles all these options so i brought it home and my wife said well wait a minute this has a this has no top and it's not red and so yeah i kind of got out of red and honestly i'm kind of done with red i'm really kind of done with silver cars i've had a lot of silver cars too i've now the next cars like my orange crush are going to be really crazy colors that's yellow purple no probably not (laughs) no probably not yellow and purple but you know, I love I love some of the greens they have now because my Scirocco, when I bought that in 79, was a metallic green with a, a tan interior. Uh, I put those gold BBS rims on it, you know, the basket weed. Well, you were a little kid then, but any rate. No, I know the look. Yeah. I know the look. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is I love Irish green, but, you know, I'm not opposed to a signal green either. Signal's cool because it's bright, but there's some wonderful like olive green, leaf green, stone gray. Porsche has some greens that are really stunning that are monochromatic, non-metallic colors uh, that, yeah, if I was, you know, I always go and play in the Porsche configurator, build my dream cars. Magically, I put every option on it. It becomes very expensive. But, um, yeah. I I can't tell you the number of times I've done that. Yeah. You pour pour yourself an old-fashioned or Uh grab a beer and you just hang out and and dream. Build your dream car. Yeah, and then you go, what? (laughs) (laughs) $349,000? (laughs) <laughs> ah, yeah. But I tell you the car I, I really like, and I've driven them a bunch on the track, are the Caymans. I just drove the Cayman S just north of New York City last week. Oh, really? So what did you think? Yeah. What did you think? So the leaves were changing. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, it's the experience, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. it's not just the car in that moment. It's yeah. it's like the surroundings that I'd never been to that I'd always want to drive a car through. And yeah, um, yeah my good buddy Kyle kind of facilitated that nice. to happen. and. um got some great photos and um just had a wonderful afternoon but you know i i I was selling audi jag and porsche back in 04 when the 997s were on their way out Mm -hmm. and the or uh, excuse me the 996s were on their way out the 997s were on their way back uh, on their way in yeah and um not long after that the caymans were coming out Mm. i can't remember what year that was but um so i drove a very early Cayman. Oh. And just loved, loved, loved the balance of that car. Yeah. You know, the mid-engine obviously helps and and all the rest of that stuff. So, I mean, it was, it's, I mean, a Cayman S, like if if you're not going to get a 911, yeah. get a Cayman S. Oh, yeah. Down. Yeah. Or the GTS, um, you know, a sure. little more power there. But, um, and I've got friends with the GT4. In fact, there's a video I watched yesterday of a GT4 at the Nürburgring. Yes. breaking a track record I saw uh, that yeah killer killer cars I, i'm not a wing guy though now you'd say well mike mark you've got a giant whale tail on the back of your car well there's a reason for that you know i mean it's it's for keeping the rear end down but also that intercooler is sitting up in there in that space so um but even the early 911 turbos didn't have to have a tail because there was no big intercooler 
it was a kind of a little bread box inside there and you could order it in a special configurator with no tail which are very rare cars now those early 70s yeah. cars i mean that would be cool without that tail and those big body flares and stuff kind of an rsr look kind of thing like rob dickinson's doing or rsr project or i've had a few people on my show lately that one is actually building those cars like a singer but with full electric power plant in it right right yeah, yeah i've seen some of those yeah. like through uh instagram i believe yeah there's a, a it's a company in um uh europe doing it so you know yeah there's so much cool car stuff but i could live with a cayman um i love the gt4 but again i'd probably take the wing off uh, well I, you know me and we'll get to the question, but GT3 Touring for me. Well, there you go. And there's another great, great option. Yeah, I, I know several people that have those. And it's a great mix. But, you know, with me, if I could order a brand new car today, it would be a Turbo S. And, yeah. I, and I'll tell you why. Lightning quick. <laughs> I'll tell you why not the GT3 or, or the GTRS or RSR or any of those. Again, I'm not a wing guy. I just, I'm kind of past that. And where I live up here, it's not like you yahoos in California that can go as fast as you want down the freeway. You can't do that in this state. Uh, you, you cannot speed here. I mean, five miles over, they'll pull you over. They've got unmarked cars on the highway patrol. It's just, it's ridiculous. Really? Yeah, it's no fun. But honestly, you shouldn't be going too fast anyway in the street. That's how people die. So tracks where sure. you go. And I'm probably done with doing track days with a GT3, but... I've had friends who bought those and then as drivers and then realized very quickly, these are not comfortable at all. <laughs> I mean, very stiff clutches. And even if you have a, a PDK, it's very stiff suspension, not comfortable. Their wives don't like to go with them. And so they've reverted back to a Turbo S, which is just, you're never going to use the speed anyway. Seriously. Right. Uh, right. Just as quick, but much more comfortable. And has kind of a wing thing on the back, but not the crazy tall race wing that you see on on the GT3s. But the Touring is is great because you get away without the wing and it kind of is subtle, you know? Well, Mark, just uh, just wrapping up here, uh, last question, yes. which is one that you asked me. Uh-oh, you're going to turn the mic on me here. Thanks. What is the dream drive? What car are you taking and who's in the passenger seat? Oh man, that's not fair. Come on, you can't. You generated this question, so I know you've I, had to have thought of an answer. <laughs> you know, I have, and it's been tough. Here's the, what I do for my guests when they can't answer. I say, just for today, it might change tomorrow, because some people, that's fair. some people I've had on my show are very diplomatic. I actually had a guest last week that said, "I'd like to take a drive with God and ask him okay. some questions." <laughs> I'm like, well, that's the most unique answer I've ever heard, uh, but all sorts of things. Well, let me think here. Um, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, I took a lot of nice, fun road trips with my son. One car we didn't talk about I had was a Beck Spider that was built by John Wilhoyt using all Porsche parts. He's a builder down in Long Beach, up in Long Beach yep. for you. Builds a magic cars. Built this insane car. And my son Blake and I, when he was eight, flew to Long Beach and spent five days driving it back up the coast. So I would pick my son to go on another road trip. Uh, the trip would probably be in Scotland because there's some cool. roads up there. 
Now, Europe, I've been on lots of European roads. I've been on, you know, the, the road that was in the James Bond movie that winds down the hill. I've been to the Nürburgring multiple times and driven there. And so it would be Scotland because I've heard there are some insane roads there. And my son actually got to visit there with a, in the far past, with a, he's married now, but with a girlfriend and her mom. And he said, Dad, these roads were insane. And they're, right. they're really spectacular. So it would be there. And it would be in a Porsche, of course. And I think what we would do is it would be in a brand new Porsche Turbo S that we pick up at the factory. Yeah, European and then, delivery. Yeah, European delivery. Then we drive across Europe together and then take the tube under to England, UK, and then go up there and drive that road together. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. I, that would be pretty spectacular and now you know he's an adult he's 27 and at least we talk a lot i talk this morning facetime all the time but just kind of relive that experience of the back and when he was little and he's never forgiven me for selling that car by the way sorry blake right, uh, right. but that would be yeah i think that'd be pretty cool please don't ask me how i'd spec the turbo because we don't have another hour to talk about the reasons for that <laughs> Uh, it's all good. But it would be paint um, to sample. It would be paint to sample. Something very okay. unique and different. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, and real quick, you mentioned your Alpha sweatshirt. Yeah. So yeah. what? Where, what's up with Alpha? Because we haven't even talked about Alfa Romeo. I love Italian cars. I've never owned one. I've owned Italian motorcycles and an Envy Agusta and a Ducati Monster. Nice. But uh, I love... Old Italian cars, Ferraris, of course, from the 50s and 60s. Alphas from the 40s and 50s. And this was a sweatshirt that I got. Uh, it's very kind of uh, college-ish with the script yeah. and everything. In fact, I bought a bunch of them from a guy, a vendor during Car Week in Pebble Beach years ago. I probably had this for 10 years. I think I'm down to my last three sweatshirts, and I think I bought 12 or something like that. I've just worn oh, wow. them out. and Because where I live, you know, we have to... I know you guys in Cal- SoCal don't know what a sweatshirt is, but... We have, we have them up here. I'm teasing you, but you know what I mean. So, uh, yeah, I love Italian. I, look, if it rolls on rubber, there's something about it I love, right? Yep. So, And that's yep. Cars Yeah is all about is our love and passion for cars and then wrapping all of that into your career and your, your passion. And that's why I enjoyed having you on the show, Wes, because you love cars, but you're, you're kind of on a different career path than strictly auto, but you – I mean, standard age, come on. You tie it all together, so – I love talking to people about being inspiring. I'm inspired by you because you're doing this thing on your own and launching this. And it takes me back to my days when it was just me trying to launch a business. And now I, here I am. It's just me. I'm the only guy here at Cars. Yeah, I do it all myself. So um, I've kind of come all the way back around, but I love talking to unique people every day. And I'm very grateful to be on your show. Thank you very much. And I invite obviously your listeners to check me out carsyow.com easy to find you'll find wesley's show and all my past 1900 plus guests have their own show notes page but you can find me on any podcast app and if you come to the website and click on the free book button uh, i'll send you my free filler up book and you'll get your name in the hat for giveaways which i'm doing all the time which i'm giving away a book this week actually so there you go carsyow.com instagram facebook linkedin i'm i'm everywhere Awesome. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much. Um, you're a consummate professional and I appreciate your time. <laughs> well, thank you, Wes. Uh, best to you. Success to you. I have no doubt you're on your way. So there you go. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, sir. We'll speak soon. You're welcome. See ya. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I'd like to thank Mark once again for taking the time as well as Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the theme track. And of course, the clear audio for providing the noise canceling headphones. 
Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. We'll definitely catch you in two weeks time. Take care of yourselves and see you then. Ciao.